0: I see the entire city as something that belongs to me. I'm not restricted to a particular part of town. That may have rang true in earlier years, you know, maybe Church Street was a safe haven for people to flee Weston and Lawrence, to flee Dixon and Kipling, to flee Jane and Finch and to run down to the safety of this white gay space because at least they're acting on those desires isn't a taboo, but everything else comes into stark relief, you know?
1: Hey everyone, that was Mohammed Abdul Karim Ali kicking things off for our final episode in our Mapping Black Future series, Displaced a podcast exploring the Black queer geographies in Toronto. And throughout this series, we've been archiving how people make connections in order to survive, take care of one another, and even resist through parties
2: and placemaking. In our first episode, we talked about how we both felt out of place around Church and Wellesley, which is supposed to be the destination for queer people in Toronto. Yet, our experiences there left us feeling like outsiders. For so many of us who sit at the intersections of being Black and queer, Things can feel dicey no matter where you are, but it also got us thinking about those of us who don't have a designated space and have to find our way anyway. For
1: this episode,
2: Hidden in Heaven and Home, we thought we tried something a little different. Rebecca, when I say the West End of Toronto, what comes to mind? When I first moved to the city, I'd heard this idea tossed around that the area is pretty dangerous and you just really didn't want to spend time over there. But I also learned over time how ethnically diverse the neighborhood was too, and I just figured that out as the more I learned about Toronto and its history. But thinking back, I also don't even think those stereotypes came from other Torontonians, and they certainly did not come from folks who actually lived within the neighborhood.
1: It definitely presents a disorienting view of where Black and brown folks live. Toronto, like many other major cities, is divided into little cultural hubs. You have little Portugal, little Italy, Chinatown, Koreatown. All these little pockets of the city are filled with specific cultural groups. And Western Road is where many Somali folks settled after fleeing ongoing conflicts back home. I reached out to the author of the memoir, Angry Queer Somali Boy. The memoir creates almost a living history of the Western Road area. And as a gay Somali Canadian, Mohammed's connection to this area is complicated.
0: Um, so my name is Mohammed Abdul Karim Ali, and I'm a writer in Toronto. I go by he, him pronouns.
1: We're right across from the Tim Hortons on Weston and Ralph on our way towards Weston Lines, a place where I remember Somali elders with their double doubles kick up and the aroma of Annette's donuts wafting in the air as a school bell rang. Mohammed and I took a walk through some of his old haunts.
0: I spent uh, part of my formative years in the Western area. It's also where a lot of changes happened for me personally. It's where I first came out. This is where I was living when that happened. It's also where I broke with my family and some of the sort of like dramatic events that led up to that included in a suicide attempt and hospitalization, being whisked away abroad to be wed to some stranger I'd never met and being brought back here through the generosity of friends. And so I visited Weston in 2017. I wrote about that experience in my memoir. And I believe that there's the memory of a place and then there's the reality of the place. My objective is not so much to make peace between the two, but to contrast them and to see what it is that I remembered and what it's like today in Weston.
1: Written in a homeless shelter, Mohammed's 2019 coming-of-age memoir tells the story of his coming out by way of displacement. The struggle to find belonging, a place to rest, a place to call home seeps through every page of the book. I remember the first time I even came across the title and thought, wow, I need to read this. At the time, there wasn't much written about the Somali queer experience. It really captures how Black queer folks coming from cultures that have conflicting nuances on sexuality, embark on a journey spurred on by various forms of displacement, whether it's moving out, experiencing evictions, or being pushed out of a neighborhood.
0: I've never really had a concept of home. I've lived in uh, a family home. I've lived on the street, lived in shelters. I've lived in my own spots, on my own and with roommates. I've crashed with friends when times were hard. I've moved through airport terminals, train stations, bus terminals. What I've come to understand is that movement is home for me. There's no destination in mind. I think before I kind of made it a bit more mystical by drawing parallels with the nomad in Somalia. But the nomad has a destination in mind, whether it's the watering hole, whether it's a patch of grass for his animals, whether it's the market where he sells his livestock, whether it is his final journey in life to Mecca, there's always a destination in mind. I don't have a destination in mind. It's just kind of, I'm going wherever life takes me. And that makes it hard to think of a particular place as home. And I've always been a little jealous of people who've had the same postal code since they were a baby or have known the same people for the last 15, 20, 30 years. Mm -hmm. I've never really had that. And yet, I'm still searching for something. I'm still searching for meaning to what has happened to me. In that searching, I do find that home sometimes does look like a particular thought and acceptance. And these aren't places, right? They're not Mm -hmm. fixed in the world. They're all within us.
1: The ongoing conflict in Somalia has led to large-scale displacement since the 1980s. Canada is home to one of the world's largest Somali diasporas. And many of us come from families that had to flee from the country with whatever they had on them and start a brand new life in a brand new place. The trauma of conflict runs deep in our community.
0: Weston and Lawrence always felt to me like the commercial heart of the Somali community in Toronto. And Dixon and Kipling, for example, felt like its spiritual heart. It's where the main mosque is, Khalid bin Wali. It's the same buildings that were raided by the police is where many of us have received our religious instruction in somebody's apartment, paying the the teacher $75 a month per child. You know, so I know they were living well with their leather socks in the sense of being married to each other those somalis may live apart whether they live in region whether they live in flemo whether they live in chesterly whether they, they live in gordon ridge weston west Mall, east Mall, dixon doomstown jungle they can move through these different parts with a sense of ease because there are already somalis present some do better than others at weston and lawrence People drive around in perhaps the latest car. That may not be possible for someone who lives down in Regent Park. I don't know why that is. I have yet to figure that out. I just noticed that there is a difference. And I think ultimately it's that like in Somalia itself, there are fractured pieces, but the overriding concern is with being Somali. You have Somaliland, you have Puntland, you have Jubaland, and whatever else. One can move through each one holding the same tongue practicing the same things, consuming the same food, and using the same methods to trace their ancestry. So those things don't change. It's just that physical space keeps us contained and the language and our customs allow us to surmount those physical barriers. I think when anybody is exiled, whether it's you're kicked out of the country or you're put in jail, the consequences continue long after there is some kind of certainty in life so for me in this part of town somalis have opened up businesses they've formed a community they've opened a couple of mosques there's an affinity for each other there is obviously disdain as well
1: and shared silence
0: yeah and so some of those things do get reproduced and so i just look to what people are doing and what they're not doing to better understand why it is I've arrived at this place. So I'm attempting it in solitude, but it's always taking other people's perspectives into consideration as well.
1: Every day now, more and more new condos are being built, where there used to be factories, now have wide stretches of new buildings or construction sites throughout parts of Toronto.
0: A place like Toronto is just constantly changing. And I think um, when I first came out and I was moving through the city, those changes were very rapid. So all of a sudden now, we had vast stretches of King Street become condos, where before there had been factories. Um, there were uh, large parts of South Etobicoke along the lakeshore and the, the Queensway or the Gardiner that suddenly became communities of condominiums, where before maybe there had been one or two buildings. Now there were suddenly 10, 15 buildings all of a sudden things that seemed permanent like the Toronto Food Terminal or the Mr Christie cookie factory, those were vanishing very rapidly. And what that meant was that memories were getting uprooted and tossed to the side and they were given finality. And what the changes are bringing are new experiences and experiences that are exclusive, right? They are marked by concierge. They are acquired through a mortgage. They are sustained through high income. And so, when you don't have access to any of those things, the only way I could see entry for myself into those buildings is if I got a job as a security guard or as a cleaner or whatever the case might be, or to visit a friend if I'm fortunate enough. And so, these changes I think we all have to consider whether we exist outside of the glass castles or within them.
1: Even though Muhammad doesn't live around Western Road anymore, it still holds a special place in his heart. It's where he started his coming out journey. It was where he started his journey to becoming freely himself.
0: When I lived here, I didn't do so much walking. I walked to the bus stop. I walked to the library. I walked to the pharmacy. I walked to the grocery store. I walked to the mosque. But there was never really an intention in walking to see. It was just to get somewhere. Weston and Lawrence is a place in my memories. Returning to it, I think, enhances the memory and in some ways also conflicts with it because some of the things I remember are either no longer there or they've shifted. So in coming back, I find that like my memory is dated and what can happen in my memory is that I can get a little nostalgic, right? And say, oh, why is this no longer here? or Oh, I didn't have the same feeling when I crossed the intersection this way. How I looked was different. How I interacted with people. I never really used to greet people. I never used to say, "Salam Alaikum, the way I do now. And so my relationship just has to change. It's really about my own willingness to accept that change. And I think therein lies the struggle. I'm trying uh, to be open-minded about the place because it helped to form me. So I don't want to look down on it. I don't want to dismiss it. I don't want to think, well, just because now I live more centrally, this is just marginal when it's not, you know? The reason I am where I am today is in part because of what I went through here.
1: Mohammed and I both come from Somali Muslim communities. We grew up classifying much of the world into binary concepts like haram, things that are forbidden, and halal, things that are allowed. Through specific religious interpretations, people started viewing the queer identity as haram. And we grew up with very clear conceptions of heaven and hell, who would end up there, and what we needed to secure our salvation. But just by being queer led to discourse on how heaven wasn't in the cards for us. Now, a lot of people ask me, how do you reconcile your faith with your sexuality? But that's not where I felt the real conflict was coming from. I wanted to see what it was like for Muhammad.
0: The whole notion of heaven, I think, was one that I was raised with. And I think for Somalis specifically, hell can also just look like what Somalia became, that sudden undoing of what we had worked so hard to attain, our freedom, a centralized state. Because Somalis have never had a concept of a centralized state in our history, at least not one that was in practice. I'm not sure if people thought about it. And that's the other thing that makes it difficult to know what our ancestors thought is because we don't have a written record so there was also a rupture with our past in flight you know as well as i do many of our parents their friends reverted back to a harsh form of islam as a way of repenting for following this godless system of socialism or scientific socialism and so the notion of hell was if we cross allah subhanahu wa ta'ala what happened in Somalia will be our forevermore. So while we're on this earth, while we are cast out much in the same way that God is casting out the Israelites in the Old Testament, let's try and purify our spirits amongst these foreigners, amongst these people who simultaneously hate us and provide us refuge. So today now, I don't think about heaven all that much because I realized that the work that we need to do is here on earth. And I'm, I'm actually kind of grateful that my parents insisted on living well. There was no, oh, we are reverting back to the faith. So therefore we will just suffer. There wasn't any of that, let's lash ourselves. It was go to school, do well, make a name for yourself and don't let what we have gone through be in vain. And perhaps if you're so inclined, return home and help to rebuild that is a hopeful and an optimistic outlook but one that wasn't constantly practiced so instead what i felt was just a burden and i discounted the hopefulness and today i because i have a bit more distance from my family i can see the value in what they were attempting but of course trying or thinking of doing good versus doing good are two different things
1: as with all Orthodox communities, there's not a lot of room for nuance. What's bad is bad, and what's good is good. You are governed on the inside by rules on the outside. What is haram and halal dictates what you should feel, what you should think, and who you should be. But for so many of us on the margins, we know that categorizing things into two distinct and imposing categories leaves out so much. It demands that we leave ourselves behind, obscuring our paths.
0: I sought out that haram, so inside for me always represented the attempt to be halal, even though on occasion we might eat KFC or McDonald's. But inside meant Quran, meant Salat, meant fasting, meant the proclamation of faith, meant deference to my elders. Outside meant Western permissiveness. It meant nobody is going to chastise me for getting drunk. Nobody's going to tell me anything if I sashay down the sidewalk. They might glare at me, they might pounce on me, but it's not something everybody co-signs. And so I felt inside was stifling, inside was hellish. Outside is where freedom really was. And outside was not heaven, because I knew I could get popped either by someone in the community or I could get popped by the police. But ultimately, I knew that there was a freedom outside that. I could not achieve at home because i was so totalizing because i was so extreme in my conduct i just ditched everything i said oh forget it being somali is not worth it mm. being a good muslim is not worth it trying to do right doesn't work because i've seen countless people in my family trying to do good and all it really got us was pain all it really got us sh- was these shameful secrets right um and so i decided that i was going to live shamelessly out in the open and come what may that brings certain people into your life. Today now I think it's much more important for me to live a life that is underpinned by a sense of peace and again that brings a certain set of people into my life and I get to decide who's in my life. When I'm pouring cocaine down my nose and I'm suckling at a bottle 24-7 that brings a certain I go seeking out and I go seeking for a kind of a type of scum because I thought of myself as scummy. So today I have a different vision of myself. I think it's important to remember that I come from people who try and live well, you know, regardless of what they physically might have done to me. I can only be hopeful about the future, even if that future looks bleak at the moment.
1: As we come up to Hickory Tree Road, our route changes. There's now a gate where we used to cut in between to get to Western Lions, And I remember again, this is why placemaking is important because it looks differently, it's fluid for folks like us, as external places begin to close off and disconnect us from one another. On top of how people around you, whether it's family, friends, or community, may not co-sign who you are and who you're trying to be, it can feel at best disorienting and at worst unsafe. Black queer youth need to see examples of what their futures can look like. They need to see folks like Muhammad who are living a life that may not even seem possible for them, a life that allows them to just be. So seeing a new definition of home can be life-saving, a rebirth even. But when faced with displacement, even with the changes from gentrification, liberation is a challenge. The city is rebuilding itself to make more room, but for whom?
0: What I've come to see now is that um, it never pays to just hold back because I know that I'll be standing at the mouth of my grave wondering why I decided to leave that part out and why I decided to elevate one thing over the other. And there's nothing today that keeps me tied to any sense of honor. The best kind of writing does away with that for me. The best kind of writing is the kind that interrogates and makes light of people's posturing in that way. And it's doubly important for people who have been rendered stateless or who find themselves occupying that position in society. Honor and dignity is very important because there's very little that gives them that. Whether it's in work, whether it's in sending their kids to school, whether it's just being part of the body politic. Their dignity, their safety, their livelihoods are constantly threatened or diminished. So they have to have something that props them up, that gives them a sense of humanity. And having me in the corner, shouting all of the shameful things or saying the unspoken out loud, it doesn't engender any kind of like, warm feeling toward me and what it is that I'm doing. But I'm fine with that. It doesn't bother me in the least.
1: I think in some ways though, it informs a place among the placelessness Mm. sorry it's so wordy but like this whole conversation is about placemaking against these odds Mm -hmm. and your book kind of channels what people are already thinking Mm -hmm. these are not things that just because they're unsaid doesn't mean it doesn't happen
0: absolutely
1: and i think that is honorable so is identity tied to a place
0: So I've recently come into contact with my birth family, and there was so much about my childhood that existed in imagination. Now there's definite answers to those questions, and there's no way I could have foreseen that the moment I had written those words. That I would have aunts and uncles and grandmother and siblings and cousins and who would have a better idea of what I was like instead of me relying entirely on my imagination. So Mm -hmm. that is still jarring. Is it tied to a piece of land? You know, they live in Minneapolis. I live here in Toronto. I have relations that live in Europe, in other parts of Africa, in the Middle East, Australia, and of course the ones that have returned to Somalia. Each one is going through something that demands of them answers that are perhaps too large to answer or to give voice to without there being like some kind of social vehicle for that. So if the community at large is not interested in answering the question about what it means to be a Somali in Toronto, but instead is focused on returning to some lost Eden Somalia pre-civil war and trying to make something out of the wreckage we left behind, then that demands that the rest of us remain silent and those who dare to say anything that contradicts that longing, that grasping for the lost, you're a traitor. You don't deserve membership in the community. There are different gradations to exile. So I don't interact much with the community here in Toronto by virtue of my sexuality, by virtue of saying the things I say, because they're not wanted.
1: For folks who don't have the traditional sense of coming out, but that shared understanding, and it may not be the same sexuality, but what we mark to be taboos when we're just trying to live. What would you say to
0: the future of that? Continue, continue being truthful, continue living your best life. And if that means that there's the potential for exclusion from the people you've known most of your life, that is a decision that that person has to make for themselves. Is it worth it? Is it worth it for me to speak my truth and potentially risk alienation? That's the question that I continue to answer for myself, and I think if someone wants to live their truth, they have to come up against that. I'm not gonna say it's easier to just stay quiet and remain in the closet and to just embrace the taboo and maybe act out in secret. We all have our own burdens to bear, and I don't wanna be prescriptive, you know? I just want for me to be able to move through the world assured that I have a place in it, and that place demands that I say something.
3: My name is Melissa. last name Watson. I am someone who has lived in Toronto for much of my life. Myself, I originate from California. That's where I was born. And a long lineage of my family live in Georgia. So both Cherokee and Black and White Welsh on my mother's side. And I now live outside of the city, but I cherish the city for what it offered at the time.
1: Melissa is a multidisciplinary artist who believes that the waterways of Toronto tell the real and untold stories of who lived here and how they cared for the land. I asked them on their thoughts on gentrification on this land and how, while being uprooted like
3: Muhammad, migration is inevitable. The main wonder that I had was the relationship between Black and Black Indigenous peoples' connection to where they live, where they call home, and the water that moves through their homes or how their homes interact with the water. And I was curious about how black spaces, indigenous spaces, people are often pushed out and there's a lot of forced migration. And this similarly happens maybe over a larger span of time to the waterways in Toronto, where a lot have been buried over a lot have been redirected. A lot have been dammed. I can't think of a waterway that hasn't been in some way interrupted by development. That relationship between the waterways shifting or being shifted and people being shifted was interesting to me. And I think that um, the uprootedness of not always having stable a stable home or a stable neighborhood or a stable community that feels safe and feels grounded and feels like long lasting, I just feel like there's a lot of metaphor, but also just like some real underlying like parallels between um, the waterway histories and black and indigenous communities histories here. Even when land is like carved and shaped by the people that inhabit it, water is kind of always on its own track and its own through its own movement. It like reminds us to keep moving, I think too. And that movement is okay and migration is good. Finding that same relationship or similar relationship to water here is really grounding for me. Like
1: Mohammed, Melissa has lived here wondering how people being pushed out and displaced can reflect our sense of home. In Toronto, the telling of its history has been shaped by colonial violence, a violence that seeks to erase all that came before it or exists outside of its strict parameters. Melissa, through their work, seeks to tell the
3: real story of the land called Takaranto valuing Black folks, has always been something we've had to fight for. It's never been something that has been a natural occurrence in the minds of white supremacy and, and capitalism and, and colonialism, and neither have marshes, right? Like, not that they're directly relatable. I can't relate my experience directly to that of uh, natural space, right? But I can say that, like, marshes are one of the most Ecologically diverse, biodiverse, very high nutrient, very alive places, right? And they're the spaces between where the land meets the water. But because they are undesirable to those who can make them invisible, they are taken away, that transition space. And I think too, like this connects to with like binary and like normativity that's very like black and white, where like there can be no gray things are right and wrong there is there's no flexibility and there's no nuance in the values that like dominant society holds in my opinion and black people and indigenous people and people of color like are very nuanced by our cultures and by our traditions so if we were to like see a marsh or understand a marsh then we would probably value it I won't I can't say everyone but it depends what your values are as a person but You can understand the value that it has to the space around it and therefore not have a immediate desire to like take it away. (laughs) But um, so a lot of that knowledge is not um, known or shared or valued as much. And the folks who lose out on that the most are the folks that aren't making the decisions that impact them.
1: How has the control over land mirrored the way Black and brown communities in the city have been displaced?
3: Places like St. John's Ward, which is now Kensington, used to be a really big hub for immigrants, Chinese, I believe Irish as well, as well as Black from everywhere. And it was low money, just like it is often seen now, where places that are often Black spaces or that the power that be allow Black people to exist are not the spaces that are the most desirable for them until that they are, until they're like, okay, we're going to take the space over now and, and you can now move to this new place, right? So that's happened again and again and again over time in lots of different spaces throughout the city. We are siloed islands or neighborhoods within a larger expanse of white occupation. Even if we just think of the city itself, like outside the city, Yeah, you've got black people with maybe some money that have gone into the suburbs, but a lot of the open spaces or large property places, they're mostly white owned, right? When I think about like the amount of people that have been lost to migration, to displacement, to poverty, to all these things that are put upon us, it feels not enough to say, the river exists underneath still, or it has moved. And I guess the bones exist too, but it's such a deep feeling of mourning and grief that even the thought of water being buried is not enough.
1: The other part of Melissa's work is to restore the waterways to its
3: indigenous roots. So the Humber River is a space where we've been trying to re-indigenize the plants, Mm -hmm. placing in indigenous plants along its way so that we can help them reestablish themselves because that waterway Like many waterways, the banks have been very damaged even though it still exists there. That's the history I have. And just that this space has been taken care of by very many people. There's just been so many people who have come through over thousands and thousands of years to the meeting place, right? And waterways have been a big part of people meeting here. It's the five great lakes. These big rivers are why people came here. It made the space so full of life and so full of food and resources.
1: For a long time, Melissa says they didn't have a relationship with the waterways other than drinking tap water until they started to pay attention to the sounds and movements underneath the roads. For them, the roots that the waterways exposed felt like healing. Melissa's adopted, so rooting in a space created a sense of home.
3: So when I was growing up, I didn't observe blackness. I didn't observe queerness. I didn't have a lot of access to spaces outside of a suburb, a very white suburb at the time. So that made my world both very large because I felt like an alien in it. Not necessarily always in a bad way, but I had a sense of self that I felt good about, but it was very different than anyone else's. And that was peculiar. That was strange for me. And then when I got older and I moved to the city, I got to see Black people. I got to see queer people, right? That was like quite a while after a lot of my learning had occurred, right? I had to do a lot of unlearning. I had to do a lot of reflection. I had to do a lot of dealing with some trauma before I really understood what community was and how to participate in healthy relationships. Observing my surroundings both kept me really safe. Just looking up at the sky, you know, I was like, I had a lot going on when I was a kid and I have a distinct memory of looking up one time, and then that was kind of the moment that I decided that I wasn't gonna keep looking down. I definitely look down now, I look down at everything. (laughs) There's a lot of cool stuff on the ground, but I wasn't looking down for the right reasons for a long time.
1: Where there's growth, there's a lot to look forward to, but when land and water is disrupted and interrupted and people face discrimination, violence, and forced displacement, it begs the question, where to? and mainly how that's transfigured for Black queer folks. For Melissa, home is widespread and is connected to the waterways in the underground rivers.
3: You know, like being adopted and being removed a couple times from my familial environment, both land-wise, wire-wise, and family-wise. There was naturally a distance that I had with place and everything. I was very far from the ground. I think uprooted is what we kind of like came to last time. I started very far away from home. Not that home was anywhere in particular, but that I wasn't there. I wasn't in a home. I wasn't at home. And that was how it was for a long time. And I found a home within myself. Then it kind of expanded outwards a little bit. And then as far as waterway goes, like waterways being the great connector for me, the water in my body. The water of my body will always be connected to the water that is outside of my body and is always carving, is always moving, it's always journeying, it's always, I'm not stuck in a place that I don't feel good in. I was really interested in the
1: many meanings of Tkaronto, such as sticks in the water and the gathering place and more. How do you find that reflects our relationship with communities against the control of the city?
3: Well, even just the idea that both those meanings are related to rivers and that no matter how much development has occurred, no matter how much disruption or burying or redirecting of the waterways or damage of the banks, they still exist. My friend Isaac, he'd say that you can bury a river, but you can't stop the rain. It's an act of resistance to, like, exist, just period. And rivers are a force. They always have been, and it just... It makes you think about community too in the sense of micro to macro or everything in between because you can have a river like as thin as a snake and as big as a city, as wide as a city, a lake that looks as wide as the ocean when you're standing next to it. I think water has resisted colonization in big ways and it continues to feed us. It continues to feed everything. And so the name of Toronto at least reflects... It's true nature of existing because of the ways the waters come together and allow people to come together.
2: Thank you, son, for taking us along with you in these conversations. I really appreciate Melissa's point there about finding home within yourself. And of course, returning to that idea of existing as resistance, especially in a place like Toronto. Absolutely, Rebecca. Home is pretty multifaceted. For me, had it not been
1: for connecting with folks and all these different spaces, I don't think I would have saw myself. I wouldn't have a concept of home. I wouldn't have a concept of heaven to go to either because it was written out for me as a Black Muslim. But these things now I feel like can coincide peacefully. Hearing various experiences of other Black queer folks on the go, however life takes them, has allowed me to envision that life goes on and life is possible.
2: It is indeed. And, you know, over these past three episodes, we've really been able to dig into what life holds in Toronto for Black queer folks and the ongoing efforts to establish community and places of belonging. We've heard from organizers, artists, writers, educators, and more. They've helped us to unpack the nuance of living
1: in displace. Definitely. And it helps to remember that strengthening our relationships with each other in the land that we're on fulfills our need to be here. So we hope our limited series brings a light to how Black queer networks and community members not only survive, but thrive into the future. This podcast would not have been possible without the amazing sounds, music and art from Kaya Joan and a big shout out to
2: our audio editor and mixer, Sabrina B. We'd also like to thank our executive producers, Bria John, Tayo Barrow, and A Aful, and of course, the Black Futures Now Toronto Collective. You can find all social media contacts in the episode
1: description and be sure to check out our website and other episodes in this series wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Peace! Peace.